welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is your host, uh, I don't know, Barry, Barry Monkhouse. Go with that. It's like Bob Monkhouse, but kind of a little bit more working class. I'm not having a breakdown, okay? I promise you. I'm in the middle, if anything, of coming out the other side of a breakdown because the summer's here. As the undertones said, summer's here and it's time to come out. It's time to discover what fun is about. And on that note, please, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Andy Zaltzman to the Limehouse podcast. Not just yet, obviously, down the down the road in a, in a couple of minutes. Andy Zaltzman, you're going to know him from uh, Radio 4, does that, that the quiz show on Radio 4. And also, if you're a test match special freak like I am, which is a cricket-based uh, show, uh, he is the analyst on there. Damn, that guy does a good job. Oh, yeah, he does. Uh, so look, there's a bit in this podcast where it gets a little geeky, crickety-wise, right? We go, we go quite deep. And cricket. It's not for very long. It's for a maximum of five minutes. We do talk about cricket, but as an overview, and it's quite fun, even if you're a neutral to the game, it's still quite fun. Talk about Test Match Special and what have you, and, 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 and the glory of that show. People like Jonathan Agnew, who has already been on this podcast, and uh, I, I encourage you to go and listen to that show. There's about a year ago, and uh, that was in the depths of lockdown, so Jonathan was very much sort of giving us all hope. Anyway, Andy and I sort of, we talk a little bit about his life, um, the Bugle, the podcast that he did, is doing rather, and and his journey. But it's also, we, 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 we kind of go into what makes a success of someone, the definition of what success is, uh, struggle and what have you. And it's a, it's a very good chat. I really enjoyed it. I did, I, we did it whilst we were in um, Somerset in, uh, a little while back now, about three weeks ago. And I was streaming this off my phone, so you'll have to forgive me if, if it uh, conks out slightly. The Wi-Fi wasn't all that great. But anyway, we know it's not all about Wi-Fi, do we? We know it's about bigger things. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you did, do reach out and let me know. The Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, at LimehousePod. And uh, I'm on Instagram. This is Limehouse Podcast on Instagram. Wonderful, isn't it? So, yeah, if, if you do, on, a, yeah, on a, another slightly different note, if you are, I don't know, at a, at a loose end at one time or another over the next few days, somedaysofdiamonds.co.uk. Do check it out. That's uh, the wonderful website, if I may say so myself, that has the Limehouse Podcast blog on there, Limehouse Podcast episodes, and the short film, The Name, that I did. Uh, somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. It's even got some of my music that I've done over the years on there. So you'll know that the intro music to this very podcast, There Goes the Summer, was written, uh, I don't know, Dave Grohl style by me. I sort of do everything, play the drums, bass, guitar, sing, uh, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune, you know. Uh, yeah, so that is all there on the, on the website. So that's, I don't know if it's exciting. I, I wouldn't go as, as far to say that it's exciting because it's never really exciting promoting yourself, is it? It's a little bit, it's it's awkward. But 
If you ever want to get anywhere in life, you've got to kind of overcome those things, the awkwardness. Anyway, look, enough of my yakking. Enjoy Andy Zaltzman. He is a good guy. He's a funny guy. He's a stand-up comedian. He's an analyst on Test Match Special. He's a host of a radio show. He's the host of a, a podcast. He is, in short, nothing but a genius. Enjoy, if you will. Can, can I be really unprofessional and ask you? I do know, I do know you host a Radio Four comedy program, but I forgot what it's called. Yeah, the news quiz. It's called yeah. the news quiz. Okay, there we go. There we go. Sorry, I, yeah. I'm very, very bad. Um, how long? How long have you been doing that for, Andy? Uh, well, I did um, a series last autumn, and then they appointed yeah. me for full time host for this year. So it's three series a year, um, eight weeks each. But fortunately, there's not too much overlap with the cricket season, so it works works quite well. Man, when you got when you got that gig, you were like, "God, oh, Jesus Christ! I hope this doesn't interfere with TMS." I would, I, I can imagine. I mean, what would what would you be? What would you do? Where where would your loyalties lie? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know in terms of contracts, to be honest. But um, well, let, you know, um, let's just pretend there aren't any contracts. I'll tell you yeah. where you go. You go TMS, and you know you would. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I mean, there is a clash in a few weeks but i've managed to um sort out recording the news because after day two of the test match so right um, there you go but, but at one he point said, la- rubbing last his year because the news quiz, the news quiz we record the day before so last last year there was a test in southampton that began on the friday and i'd recorded mm. the news quiz on the thursday so i was simultaneously on radio four hosting the news quiz and on Radio 4 Longwave, uh, doing stats on TMS, which is a good bit of multitasking, I think. I, don't know, I just don't know how... I just don't know how you do that. Like, that's beyond... Oh, my God. I mean, I mean first of all, obviously, anyone who listens to TMS is going to be pretty blown away about how, you know, the stats that you pull out the bag anyway. Um, it, I mean, it just... I don't know how you go about doing it, and it baffles me. In a beautiful way, by the way, Andy. <laughs> I'm not saying it, it encourages me to tune out. Quite the opposite. Um, I just don't know how you balance that in your mind, like the the, the multitasking um, aspect of it. Well, it's it's. I guess it's. Uh, well, so I think it helps not to just do one or the other all the time. So, um, mm. yeah, cricket's almost. Uh, well, it's a sort of release. I mean, it is as a fan, really, but also sort of working in it to you know not have to follow all the news and politics for a few days is quite it's quite refreshing, really. Right. See, cricket's yeah. my lifelong obsession. So, um, yeah, yeah, if I'm sort of sitting at home, getting thinking, I've just read too much news today, or just spent half an hour making an Excel table full of numbers for for, for cricket. So, um, oh, stop it! Yeah. You're turning me on. <laughs> Stuff. And just so you know, I'm on a mini holiday in the West Country, and I'm I'm doing this podcast in bed. So you better stop oh, right. because okay, all right, yeah. You yes. know, I might be horizontal yeah. and passing out here with with my fant- <laughs> my true fantasy. Um, 
Yeah, like it'd be cool to know like when cricket really infiltrated your childlike mind. I'm just gonna guess it was like eight years old, maybe oh, sorry, 10. Sorry, cutting perhaps. out a bit there. Sorry, yeah, my internet is appalling here. So sorry if I if you if I do drop in and out. Have I completely dropped out? Have I died? Sorry, I'm I'm not getting you're cutting out a lot. And you've sorry, frozen. mate. It might be easier yeah. to just do it on a we take the video off to Yes, let's stop the vid. There we go. I've stopped my videos. Okay. That well, I'll out. switch my video off as well. So you... Okay. No. Um, yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, no, I mean, I can imagine a 10-year-old Andy getting into cricket. Was it that early? Was it earlier? It was earlier than that. It was... Uh, I was six. So it was the summer of 81. I was... Uh, yeah, sort of, I don't know, six and a half, heading towards seven. Right. And yeah. just sort of caught some of it on the telly. But the real the real moment when I the, the obsession sort of dug into me was uh, uh, later that year, my dad gave me a couple of books about the 81 yeah. Ashes. Um, and then they had uh, little Bill Frindle scorecards and stat sheets in the back. And I think that that uh, <laughs> opened a wormhole into another world for me, and I just I just I was just fascinated by the by the numbers. I was quite a uh, I guess a sort of mathsy kid, and um, right, yeah. uh, I just just loved it. So and then the, the next summer, uh, India and Pakistan were touring, and that was a, I guess the first summer that I sort of followed from start to finish, particularly the Pakistan series, which was in the yeah. school summer holidays. And uh, I just remember watching hours of that on my own as a seven-year-old. Because you know, my, my dad was wow. a bit of a cricket fan, but I don't really remember sitting down and watching cricket w with him. So I just, I yeah. just, and I guess, you know, if, you're, if I have two siblings, my my sister would have been a two-year-old child at the time. So I guess from yeah. my mother's point of view, <laughs> if it was one of the three children, she could just plonk down right. at 11 a.m. <laughs> in front of the telly and <laughs> yeah. scrape them off the sofa at six o'clock, then that was probably quite quite a handy thing as a parent, I guess. I'm um, Yeah, I'm guessing she's kind of, um, she's praying for like a, a zero rain just as much as you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for yes. Christ's sake, no rain. That's quite funny because I, I, um, I wasn't that young, but I can remember, um, I remember when the cricket was on, on telly. I was so obsessed with it, I used to record it and watch it. And I'd never ever used right. to rewatch. I never used to watch the footage again. It was just knowing that it was there. You know, <laughs> Tony yeah. Lewis. Was it Tony Lewis, the guy, the Welsh man who used to present yes. it? Yeah. Yeah. God, the mellifluous voice. Tony yeah. Lewis. Oh, I used to love. And it. I, I remember the. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why they're stuck in my mind, but there was uh, <laughs> obviously the the graphics were pretty rudimentary. But at one point they got oh, a. Yeah. The capacity to draw on the screen with a with a pen, it would come up with white lines so they could highlight field positions and things. And um, I think yeah. uh, Tony, it was Ray Illingworth's birthday, and uh, Tony Lewis scrawled HB for happy birthday. And then whatever Ray Illingworth's age was in these kind of, yeah. kind of childish letters on the screen, and it, it felt like the absolute height of technology that he could even consider doing. Oh, how are they? How are they doing that? Mum, mum, are you drawing on the screen? Yeah. Someone's drawing on the screen. This is insane. <laughs> My brain has been broken. 
Yeah, I know. I can remember. I, I still um, nostalgically, I, I, I wish that Sky or whoever had the TV rights. I wish that they would do just like a, just like a throwback, just for one test match, just all the all the stuff in the old school fonts. You know, that would be so brilliant. Yes, I mean there is something when when you see old cricket footage. There's something about the fonts, the various fonts used for scorecards. Is yeah. it just kind of throws you back to, to childhood? It's extraordinary. There's something as basic as just the letters on a screen. Yeah, um, do, do, yeah. But I, it was I, interesting I, with I, the, the county coverage, that the, the county coverage they're doing with fixed cameras. That in fact Sky yeah. were broadcasting um, Middlesex today, just using those the, the cameras from the county online streams. And and what's interesting is it's quite they're quite obviously the there's not much they can do with it. Um, mm. But there's something about just a fixed camera not zooming in, as, as cameras tend to when a bowler bowls now. This will zoom in, and your eye has to constantly refocus. And there's something about just yeah. a fixed camera that actually makes it a bit clearer to see what the ball's doing and uh, um, and various other aspects of the game. So I don't know if uh, hopefully uh, lessons will be learned from from the benefits of uh, keeping a camera still when a, a bowler's bowling. Okay, yeah, you're going to start getting on your high horse about this on TMS in the summer. Why don't they just keep the bloody <laughs> cameras still? For Christ's yeah. sake! And like, it's not Andy, such a... you're going to have to leave. <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. see Aggers having to pick you down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is true. That is actually that's a very good that's a good point actually. Yeah, the, you see, I've missed I've missed it there. My intelligence level has peaked. Um, yeah, no. Do you know what? The, one of the greatest moments I've ever had was. Um, was speaking to Aggers on this show. And um, I remember literally not being able to sleep for three days before it. Um, That's how, (laughs) I think it's pathetic, but it's it's also, I think there are a lot of people that be listening to this going, I can kind of understand that. He's he's such a big deal. And I guess that, do you think any, any of the TMS lot to you are a big deal? Like when you first started working for TMS, was it like, Jesus, this is, freaking this is the shit man this is the biggest i don't know for some people it's kind um, of like getting coronated <laughs> uh, yeah well it was really massively exciting i mean not so much in the you know the individuals um that i was working with because i'd met quite a few of them before i've met Agas a, a few times at various other events um mm. and i tend not to be starstruck generally um uh, but just like the that. you know just being part of uh of of test match special was you know it was a program i've been listening to since early childhood and yeah. you know, it was part of the you know, sort of rhythm of my life i guess that you know this summer's take the dog for a walk with a little little radio in my pocket and um you know yeah. occasionally t- you know taking it to school and whatever <laughs> listening during lessons yeah so yeah. it was um uh yeah, it's obviously just an incredible thing to be part of as a, as a lifelong cricket fan that um, yeah, suddenly sort of found myself part of the uh, part of that show. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really, and, and the, my, my TMS debut was the morning after the Brexit vote in 2016. So I'd been Jesus up works. almost all night watching the news and looking up stats about the Sri Lankan one-day team. Um, whilst about to, to make my TMS debut, so it was uh, that was a curious, yeah, curious experience. Oh, Andy, I love that. I absolutely love that. Oh, that is so funny. I was at Gla- I was at Glasgow, and um, 
the the, the, the uh, Brexit result came in. So I spent the whole of Glastonbury at the left field stage crying into my pint and um, yeah, right. and uh, <laughs> listening to Billy. Yeah, Blair I imagine going. the left. Yeah, the left field stage might not have been a particularly happy place then. I did. I did a, a yeah. stand up set there one year. Must have, it was a few years before that. Um, yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was good fun. But uh, um, yeah, it was a really st- strange. Strange. In fact, my first stat on as the TMS uh, stats person on uh, the one day as in 2016 was the fact that England had a very good record in their one day internationals. They played after a referendum on Europe because yeah. the, the 1975 referendum was two days before they thrashed oh, India in the in the World Cup opener um, when in the, the game when Gavaskar batted 60 overs for 36. Um, so that was my first stat was England's <laughs> superb record. Uh, immediately oh. after a Europe referendum, <laughs> I love it. That's a, but that's quite a that's quite a Zoltzman stat. I think that's what people love about you, mate. It's the um, it's the ra- not it's not the randomness. It's the attention to the slightly more hum- human side of it, the quirkier side of it. You know, is that was that something that you sort of thought I'm going to bring into this? Because it's funny. Like you are a funny person. Also, you're a stand up comedian for God's sake. You know, um, did, did did they employ you to do look just the stats and just keep it dry or was there you know were you allowed to be a little bit more free reigning free range um, well no I th- and i think they booked me be- you know partly because i was a comedian i guess i thought i could bring something a bit a bit different to yeah. the, the the stats chair for the for the one day stuff um it, i mean in terms of the the stat i mean i'd written about statistics for crick info for sort of seven or eight years before i started doing tms so i was fairly well immersed in it um and you know, there are sort of quirky things like, you know, like that stat, which is, you know, there's not really a great deal in it. But, um, and then, the, you know, you get the sort of numerical quirks and the strange events. But more and more, particularly as a, uh, I guess, got, you know, got slightly better at putting st- stats through Excel spreadsheets and trying to get beyond the, uh, the, um, just the instantly available stuff. Is yeah. the statistics I like best are the ones that help illustrate why a game is progressing as it's as it's going what might happen you know the you know the yeah. sort of contest between between players things that sort of help and help illustrate what the commentators are are talking about and maybe um you know shed a bit of light that isn't necessarily immediately obvious from just the sort of basic averages and things yeah and i mean it's an interesting time to come around um into cricket because it's changing it's become very very st- uh, statistically driven i mean i know it's always been a little bit like that anyway but but for my for my i don't know for, for me anyway when you were talking earlier about loving tms at such a young age for me it was um it was you know it was the art of getting tms um over the cricket uh, over the tv commentary and sitting there and listening my granddad yeah. my dad sort of said that was that's the way you do it and it wasn't even it wasn't <laughs> even questioned you know, and it's like now you join in 2016 when it's like, I mean, it's a completely different game to watch now, obviously, and the stats are just insane. But there's something so wonderfully, um, something that really goes through the generations with TMS. And that's because it's uh, it's got that glass ceiling, but it's a wonderful one It's because it keeps everything. It keeps I don't want to I don't want to sound like, you know, like an old codger or anything, but it's nice to have. <laughs> the the knowledge that when you tune into TMS, it's just voices. There's no, you know, it's just going to be the bedrock is going to be pure cricket, I suppose. Yes, and well, there's something 
personal about audio in general um mm. you know, and listening to the radio uh because you're you know you're a participant in it really because your mind is having to put the pictures in on top of the words so um yeah and it's something that you you can have on in the background you have on in the in the car and it is you know it's a sort of a companion really and then yeah, i always enjoyed audio comedy um doing radio shows and and latterly podcasts uh hugely because there's that element where you can sort of you know suggest images and the you know your audience member or your listener almost has to complete that image or they almost finish the joke in their own in their own mind so it, there's a yes it's um yeah audio is a sort of rich it's a, it's a rich format for you know any type of performance i guess but partly because oh, yeah. of that relationship you have with uh with a with your with your audience um in a way obviously television yeah. has you know people are looking at the pictures and almost sort of make up their own their own minds in a slightly different way so yeah it's uh but also just in terms of that sort of emotional tie to it that you know if you're into cricket it is um you know part of the way that you we've kept in touch with the game over over decades so it's uh yeah i guess it's the yeah. part of that tapestry of your yeah. life as they say because yeah i mean basically i suppose what i'm saying is someone could tune in like for, for the 1940s okay obviously the sound quality is completely different but they wouldn't really notice that much of an, <laughs> that much of a difference i think i mean you know for brexiteers out there it's wonderful you know it's like you know keep britain, britain. <laughs> keep, keep keep tms <laughs> yes i don't know if tms oh, had much dear. pressure from brussels to change and make it more accessible to the eu crowd <laughs> 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 Fucking um, EU bastards trying to change TMS. Can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, that would be the final straw, wouldn't it? That would be like Farage would wading in, being like, oh, God, you can imagine it. You know, Mac Macron's already trying to tell us the change. Red and blue, change TMS. <laughs> anyway, I'm going completely insane. I swear I've been trying to get a cold for the past two weeks, and it, it's just <laughs> teetering on the edge, and it's just... It, it's made some very interesting podcasts where I just go off on these random tangents. I say interesting, it just makes me sound like I'm completely insane and it's quite boring. <laughs> I think when you start explaining your own insanity, it just sounds boring and you sound more mad. <laughs> um, but, um, Jesus. No, it's funny because I really, I forgot this point. I wanted to, not point, but when you were talking about the old school version of, uh, not version, but old school watching the cricket, um, I remember Christopher Martin Jenkins was such a, a big part of that experience for me um and i grew up watching this uh, when we got absolutely destroyed by the aussies and i think i can't remember you'd know we were 93 or something um and uh, over here yeah. and um there's this, this dvd this, this dvd this vhs that i used to watch like it's just in, an insane amount in truly insane and we were we were annihilated in that in that series just completely um, I, I I think maybe it was the one where Atherton got run out in '99. Oh, right, yeah, that was '93. Yeah, yeah, that was Shane Warne's like, first Ashes. Yeah, the, the the you know the ball of the century and all that, and I was just like, it just it's here now. It's here in this the house that I'm staying in, and I still haven't watched it because I just I want it to just be in my in my mind. <laughs> you, you know, this time capsule of a capsule of perfection, and my my little my granddad, you know, getting getting a bit hammered on whiskey behind me whilst you know, the Australians <laughs> pound us to death. Yes. Um, yeah. But I think that was part of being a, an England, you know, growing up 
yeah, as I did in the eighties and then uh, through the nineties, I think you sort of had to learn to just love cricket because England lost so much, particularly yeah. from sort of eighty six to eighty nine. I think were the particularly dark <laughs> years when they, I think, won one home test in four summers, and that was against a not very strong Sri Lanka after being pounded by the West Indies in 88. And so, so you sort of learned to just love the game and not really, almost it almost became immaterial if England were winning. And the old sort of moment of success would be great. But then you just sort of learn to love all these players from around the world and um, and the, uh, the rather the more uh, extravagant skills that they had. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting yeah. time to... Uh, and it wasn't sort of as quite as analysed. I mean, the press were very acerbic towards the England team, but things weren't... Sort of analysed technically in the way they are now with all the video footage and the and the stats and the data. But there was, um, you know, I, I think most cricket fans of my vintage uh, see want England to do well, but fundamentally just love cricket <laughs> because yeah. you could, I think if you just wanted England to win, you would have given up around about the time that, um, or probably the, the 89 Ashes when, when we'd had a few bad summers, but it was thought, and we'd, but we'd won through the previous four ashes and people are like, well, going to, this is not very good Australian side. So it's going to be someone England gets back on track and they got hammered 4-0 <laughs> with two draws and both of which rain helped England. So it was a kind of flattering 4-0 <laughs> hammering. And um, yeah, that was the... Uh, it, it did turn around after... The 90s were better than people give them credit for compared with the late 80s, I think, for, from an England point yeah, of view. It's very... Tra- it's tra- it was transitional, wasn't it? Because you had like, you know, Hussein coming in and what have you. Um, and that's just uh, me broad stroking the hell out of everything there. But I mean, I grew up, my, my golden era was the 90s. How old are you? I'm 39. So you're I'm, a little bit uh, 46. Older. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I, my, yeah, you, you, God, it's so funny that you managed to get so, I know that obviously the birth of cricket view was 81, which is an astonishing, um, year, year to get into cricket, both and what have you. But for me, it was just, it was, the tide was slowly turned, but we were still getting annihilated by the Aussies. And then, by the by the time I was really you know into it properly was probably well that's bullshit because I was always obsessed with it but when it when it really started to turn was the, the o was it the o five um when we finally yeah. won the ashes back and it's just like oh thank Christ you know yes. and it seemed you know that like the the, the tables turned we started to take things a little bit more I don't know seriously did we get the right coaches in professionalism I don't know but yeah. Well, I think, all, I mean, it sort of started with central contracts and, and um, yes, yeah. Duncan Fletcher and sort of end of 99 and then 2000 was the first summer they had central contracts. And it, it um, you know, they'd had sort of isolated successes through the 90s. I mean, very up and down, but you'd never felt that they, the organisation was striving for England to succeed. And I think that did change with central contracts coming in um, mm. and uh, which probably helped keep the bowlers fit so they'd Goff and Caddick had a sort of good run of games and a really good pair of bowlers but I think that that 05 Ashes was I think not only as good as cricket can possibly I think it was as good as sport can get and therefore as good as life can get essentially that was almost the, the perfect <laughs> the perfect con with all that the history of England not having won for nearly two decades and yeah. um, you know Australia being one of the greatest teams of all time and they had, you know coming off this extraordinary winning run um, yeah and the, the fluctuations in that series and the, you know, the moments of luck and incredible skill, mm. these great players going mm. going head-to-head and the you know, three ridiculous finishes and the Oval had its own kind of bizarre um, 
drama on the on that final day, the tension, the tension at lunch on the final day. I went oh, to all five God. days. I had a friend who joined Surrey just to get tickets for that. This was before I, I sort of worked in cricket. We went to all five days, and the tension at lunch on that last that last day, there was kind of twenty five thousand people or however many fit in the oval. It was it yeah. felt it was almost total silence. I think Flintoff had been out oh. just before lunch. The Collingwood had come in; he'd hardly ever played a Test match. Peterson had been dropped a couple of times. And it just felt like this, you know, the, the the whole series in which England had been so brilliant, and it felt like it was all about to be destroyed. <laughs> and, uh, right. and then Brit- Peterson came out. And that, that period after lunch was Brett Lee bowling like the wind, I think Warren bowling at the other end, and Peterson just going for it, sort of 40 and a half an hour or something. I think that is the best cricket I will ever see, that, that little stint God. after lunch on that last day. I love it. Well, can you can you explain, like, can you... I don't know, I I don't know what you'd say really, but can you paint a picture of like the, the the end of that match then, like how it how it came, like well, the, how it ended. the end was, the, what was great about it was the the end was really weird. I don't remember they went off a bad light, so England was finally bowled out, um, and uh, you know so Australia had to score three hundred odd in an hour or whatever it was to win. So England had. <laughs> It, at lunch, it was in the balance that, uh, you know, if, if Australia skittled England, they would have had a decent chance of chasing down in, you know, three, three and a half hours to to win the test, draw the series and keep the ashes. Um, yeah. So through the afternoon session, became that became less and less likely. And then it became clear that England had, they, they couldn't lose. And, and it was still, Ashley Giles got a 50, Peterson got up to 150, and so there was this it was hours of of sort of ecstasy <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because it because of being this you know two decade build up right yeah um it, it was uh, so it went from this kind of just stomach clenching tension at lunch uh to this sort of communal um kind of disbelieving joy uh, and then this bizarre ending where I think for the they they went off a bad light and then the umpires came back out and ceremonially tip the bales off the stumps to yeah. signal that the game was over because otherwise you'd have just fizzled out <laughs> off the field. And um, so it was a completely extraordinary, extraordinary day of uh, kind of fluctuating tensions and of this kind of slow release of, of, uh, <laughs> of pent up um, relief and, uh, yeah. and elation <laughs> that had been School, you know, 18 years emotion, made, right? Yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of what it boils down to. It's like when England were won the penalty shootout against Colombia, you know, which is coming on to three bloody years ago now. It seems like yeah. only yesterday. That for me, I I, I had a emotional breakdown because I was just <laughs> like, that was that was. I can remember watching that in nineteen ninety, and I was eight, and I can remember yeah, yeah. nine or whatever. And I remember, I remember being very 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 upset by that what you know what happens against germany and then but to have you know the release against colombia was insane it was off the hook and then yes. recently when when we when we won the world cup uh cricket world cup obviously never going to win the world cup football world cup <laughs> um but that that stokes innings again again not only in the world cup but in but in the ashes it's just un, unreal and and i suppose mike i suppose what i'm trying to get at for you as a statistician you, your mind obviously for me at least whenever you, you when i listen to you 
giving the stats out, I'm always like, and this is just another one that's been broken. Another, it just seems to me like modern cricket. I know that's a way of, of sport records get broken, but it just seems like the modern game is nearly always surpassing the old game in, in, in quite a, an alarming way. Is that, is that well, that's, true? Or? Um, it's a, I think that's been very true in one day international cricket. Um, because the, uh, well, a number of reasons. The, the fielding restrictions have changed. The balls have changed. There's been a preponderance of fairly bat, batsman-friendly pitches. Um, and the batsmen have changed. Th- you know, batters have changed through the you know, evolution of the game, which, which slightly predated T20. But I think t- T20 accelerated players' understanding of what was possible yeah. in terms of batting, in terms of the shots you can play, when you can play them, the nature of how you can attack a, bowl, a bowling side. You allied to that white balls that don't swing a lot. And yeah. that you know, led to this eruption of, of massive scores. And England got on board that a bit late, sort of a couple of years after really 2013, you started getting those really huge scores and Rohit Sharma getting 260. England went into that World Cup in 2015, trying to play the old way with a, you know, more of a sort of test match batting lineup. Um, yeah. But then as soon as they changed the following summer and picked basically, you know, a team of 11 players pretty much who could who could score a run or ball or better. Um, and, you know, they had that depth of batting that then gave the top order the freedom to attack. Um, so the, I think, you know, having a side that batted down, you had someone like Adil Rashid coming in at 11 who could, you know, scored a couple of, you know, runnable 50s in international, uh, yeah. in one-day internationals. Um, Plunkett was a really handy lower order player. Chris Wokes at eight had a, at ninety five against Sri Lanka. Um, it was. I'm not sure there's ever really been a team that could that batted so deep and so aggressively. So the, the England team that won the World Cup, in, if you look to the individual rankings, they didn't really have that many batsmen that high up from memory. I think Root Root was pretty high, up, but the rest the rest of them weren't massively. They weren't, didn't have that many players in the top fifteen. But what they did yeah. have was a whole team of players who could just uh, attack. So it didn't really matter if you know Bairstow got out for a low score one day, because the you know then you know Morgan or someone lower down the order would would, would do it, or Butler. Mm. So it was yeah they almost sort of took the individual achievements out of it for the sort of team strategy of being able to play more positively for more of the innings than any other team. You look at the, the stats of their lower order. And in most games, they didn't even need them. But I think the knowledge of what that lower order could do facilitated the way that that top order played in the, the years building up to that World Cup. And it was, you know, very kind of far-sighted selection and strategy mm. to, you know, to sort of build that team, aided, I guess, by the fact that it happened that a lot of their, you know, their best bowlers were also really handy batsmen. But I think, you know, that's partly selection and partly, you know, just the chance of the players that were there at the time. But it was a, it was, it was a great, in terms of my... TMS career. I'd started doing TMS in 2016, so that you know the Morgan One Day Revolution began the right, previous summer. Yeah. But it was a just a wonderful yeah. thing to be able to you know see that that team build up to that World Cup. And in fact, in the, the World Cup, they didn't really play nearly as well uh, broadly as they they had for the the years leading up to that. Um, mm. And the, the final, they very nearly ballsed up. But um, but yeah. it was it was such a wonderful story and. and in terms of you know the, the the moments like that and like the 05 ashes i think because the the, na- the nature of cricket means that it takes ages and then, you know the game the day is a long day 
the game in you know, test matches of you know yeah yeah the five day game the five match series and then you have those okay. elongated rivalry elongated rivalries over you know England over in Australia that have been there through your whole life in a way that same in football the England Germany rival they might not play for ten years or you know it's one game every yeah. five or six years and yeah. and you know in World Cups uh, even fewer so there's something about those elongated narratives of cricket that that uh, that contribute to the quite how emotionally um, enveloping those those type of games, those type of days and occasions are. Well, well, well. Who, was, who was a comedian for you that like really came along or set of comedians or a particular style of comedy that, that, that sort of interest you, piqued your interest as a, um, as a younger person? Well... Well, it's not, I wasn't really that into to stand up when I was young. I didn't used to go out and watch stand up. Um, it was so more you were watching Ian Botham, right? Well, there was that. Um, but yeah, the stand up, the comedy I was into was I loved the day to day on uh, BBC and um, uh, yeah. Brass Eye that Chris Morris did did after that. But when I started Fantastic. doing doing stand up, I did some gigs with with Stuart Lee when I was when I'd only just started, as sort of supporting him at a few gigs. Uh, and that was really eye-opening. Robert Newman was oh, doing yeah, some amazing yeah. political stuff at the time, and that, wow. that so seeing him do a sort of hour and a half of politics at Edinburgh Festival, I mean in nine, um, 2000, that was quite inspiring. Sort of made me change what I was doing in in my stand-up. And I'd been going for a year and a half, but I'd sort of had a set that I didn't really like. That just you know I just wanted to try and get, get a laugh by any means possible, and I, that, that's a very why, bad way it- to do comedy. So. Was it broad? Was it did you, you didn't like the broad tone of your comedy, or did you want? To yeah, well, I think I was sort of going for easy, easy laughs. Um, yeah, I mean, it was you know, it was, it was um, you know, still elements of my my sense of humour. But I think after seeing Rob Newman that Edinburgh and having a, a run in a late night package show that where well, I struggled in a lot of the gigs because I you know I didn't really uh have the experience or the skills to do late night late night gigs but it made me think you know what am i doing and i wanted to do more political stuff which is what i've always been interested in and and so by the time i went back to edinburgh to do a solo show the following year my style had changed quite a bit more towards you know what i do now um okay so uh yeah but i sort of got into it by accident really it wasn't a kind of career plan i just started doing the open mic circuit so what of, was it though? Was it you, you saw a funny guy and you thought, "Fuck it, I can do that"? Or uh, well, I'd, I'd had a go at university, uh, in which I hosted a, a comedy night in the college I was at, um, yeah. uh, which a friend organised. So I, you know, I, I guess I started thinking about it. Then did a few gigs in a student venue, then gave up for um, eighteen months after trying some open spots at the Edinburgh Festival in uh, in ninety seven, and thinking, "Well, I can't do this." Uh, yeah. uh, but you know, it's like, like anything. You need to have a few successes to understand the failures. Um, I guess, right, like in absolutely. like in cricket, that once you've had a few good innings, whatever level you're at, then you can ride out the, the ducks and the you know, caught no, behind for two. <laughs> Rather no, you can't. So. You have not. You haven't. My last. Oh my god! My last season was hysterically bad. Anyway, we're deviating again. My bad. Um, god, I love cricket. Um, but I, in, I in, two, in 2005, I was in Edinburgh during yeah. the Ashes. Oh, and, my God, no. And um, there was, I was doing a show with with John Oliver before he went to the 
went to the states and uh, we had a oh, right. there was the we our show was starting about 6:30 and the mm. third test where australia ended up hanging on for the draw was still going on when we had to start our show so i gave my oh. radio to the guy working at the venue letting people in i said well just you know just pop your head around the door um so i think it was about nine balls to go and just tell us tell us the results about five minutes into the gig the door opens this guy just puts his head around and shakes his head and go, oh no we haven't done it so um oh, but like in that situation and you know i've i've, I've edinburgh's oh, can be just grueling can't it? it can be the most the hardest most unrewarding thing and then obviously you have a small break and then suddenly everyone's coming to watch you um, even in the festival, you can go from you can start the festival to playing to like an empty room for like capacity of like two or three hundred, and then at the end of the festival, you can be packing that out um, five nights in a row or whatever. I don't know, and it's just it, it it must be astonishing. But what what age what age were you when you first went to to, to uh, Edinburgh? Uh, well, the first year I did a full run, I'd have been twenty twenty uh, twenty five, so I started okay. doing the open mic circuit properly when I was 24. Um, but I think, you know, those, I always saw a lot of similarities between sort of batting and stand-up in terms of, you <laughs> of know, success, you and, <laughs> success and success. Partly because I see everything through the prism of cricket. But, but yeah, you know, in terms of successes and failures, there's sometimes where you just get an unplayable ball and there's sometimes <laughs> where you get an unplayable audience and you've just got to you know, kind of ride it out. Um and oh, there's other mate. times where you can, you know, dig in, you see off the new ball in a gig and then it starts to get a bit easier. <laughs> you know, or you're batting one and then you do a, you know, you play a, a, a loose uh, shot and it starts going wrong. Uh, so it's more yeah, like a session, yeah. like a team session. Because obviously in a, in a stand-up, you can't, you know, when, if, you, if a joke doesn't work, if you snick a joke to second slip, that's not the end of your set. Uh, so it's more like a session of, the, I see it as the opening session of a test match. So we right. come off thinking, yeah. oh, that was a, yeah, 90 for two, not bad. You know, 120 <laughs> for, for, for Nalan, absolutely stormed it. 40 for eight and two jokes in the hospital. Um, Is, so, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I used to sort of almost score my own my own gigs. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's actually a really funny way of putting it because um, I don't know if that's um, a piece, by the way. I don't know if that's a bit from your from your, your stand-up set, but that is like, that is so, it's creaky. That's, I think, what a lot of people love, love it. It's because it's a, it's a game, it's a game that you can take into life, isn't it? And a lot of that I I do, I completely agree with. I've, um, I've done, it doesn't, it, comedy doesn't fascinate as me, fascinate me as much as some others. I've done it, before, I've done it for about a, a year and um, I I saw one guy and I saw, I saw, I saw, I guess what I'm saying is I saw behind the curtain a little bit of what it involves and I, um, I saw one guy do a gig, I've forgotten his name, and he was so unbelievably good. And I just knew that to, to be able to do it, your heart doesn't just have to be in it, like your soul, your heart, your your everything, to be able to write the stuff that is going to break through and, and you know, sustain interest for for if anywhere between five minutes and an hour and a half, you know. And I just knew that I didn't have that capacity. Um but um, I don't know. When did you know you you kind of had that capacity? I mean, no, what what really I'm more interested in is actually where you where you changed when you saw you know like other guys doing kind of what you wanted to be doing or more of I suppose more of the political um, aspect the satire and stuff. Um, when did you sort of get into that and and when did you change like um, direction? Well, it was after that that. First element that was two thousand. So I did my first solo show the following year, um, 
which was you know much more creatively ambitious i think and mm. um yeah it went pretty well not in terms of sales but i got you know, decent reviews i got a, a nomination for a newcomer award on the, the last weekend just in time to sell about three extra tickets for the last day um <laughs> but it that sort of gave me confidence that well for a start uh, the first night of that run i sold one ticket and yeah. uh, i did the show it was one ticket and a, a couple of people from my the, the agency managed me and the show went quite well. I thought, well, if I can do it to one person, then it's obviously um, yeah, got something in it. And uh, I enjoyed doing the That's show. Jo- yeah. John Oliver was doing sketches in it with me. So I wasn't, you know, wasn't like I was solo struggling through. It was nice to have that, right. that okay. support. Um, and then I did stuff in his first show the following, the following year. So it really helped having, you know, having a, a, a sort of, um, on stage partner um to sort of help through those difficult times and you're thinking well I'm slaving my guts out and I've sold five tickets so um yeah uh yeah it's uh but but you know it's um that that's part of the process for most comedians that you go through that and all the the doubts um and the challenges that 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 entails and um you know (laughs) hopefully come out a better comedian on, on the other side so um yeah and then you know i kept going back to edinburgh sort of every year for the next sort of 10 or 12 years just because i sort Jesus. of love doing it and um uh that's you know where but certainly for comedians of my generation you know we all went to edinburgh fairly early in our careers or usually after you know a couple of years three years on the circuit um yeah. and did you know solo hours and uh you know i think that was a great benefit to your comedic development if not your bank balance which could take a bit of a hit <laughs> oh god yeah well michael mcintyre talks about that um and he talks about you know the debt that he went into just to to keep to keep it going the um, edinburgh runs and what have you um obviously before he was a, a mega famous person um but yeah like why do people do it it's interesting why 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 do we do it like I, I, you know, I podcast and I'm, I'm writing and, and what have you. And, and at times, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing this show, I'm like, you know, how, how many people are going to listen to this? Am I going <laughs> to be able to do this professionally one day? You know, and, 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 and the, I think what it is, is like, we become, we have definitely, um, we become very scared of failure. And I think, or, or just being honest. You know, just saying like, hey, you know, I did a gig to three people last night. It was, I was really good. And those three people loved it. But it was three people. Um, (laughs) You know, can't, can't put that on fucking Facebook. Or I did a, you know, I did a podcast with Andy Zaltzman and and two people listened. I mean, we had fun. Um, I'm sure one day people are going to start listening. Uh, You know, it's like putting it out there and being like, it's very hard to put it out there. Um your art and be honest without sounding like a whinging whining little douchebag um and it does it can backfire but when you're doing a gig to, yeah you know like uh, edinburgh to like f-, f all people it just gets a bit is it gonna happen for me one day did you ever have that moment where you're like is this gonna happen and what um, am i gonna do if i don't if it doesn't um i don't know really i mean um i guess i always had faith in what I what I did, but at the same time, you know, I didn't really ever get a big break. It was a kind of gradual process, yeah. uh, you know, ups and downs. But I, you know, I was starting to get paid work quick enough that I, th- you know, st- you know, I had a, a glimpse early on that I could make a living doing 
doing stand-up. You know, ups and downs and years that went better than other years. I had, you know, radio shows and then they got cancelled. And really, I, I guess, you know, the sort of turning point in my career was when I started doing the Bugle podcast, which was about a yes. year after John Oliver started working on The Daily Show. And we started doing a podcast uh, late 2007. And it was before the podcast market was saturated. That's massively before. Um, that is yeah. massively. That, and that must we, be like just before Marin. Uh, yeah, it might have been before Marin, I think. My, my sister, uh, Helena, started her podcast earlier that year, so we both got in fairly early when it was more possible, I think, to make it, you know, carve a bit of a niche. We had a support from the Times early on who paid us to do it, which was, you know, very rare in podcasting at the time. Very so we could afford rare. to devote the time to write a show every week, which I think helped yeah. helped to get a bit of an audience. And that started to translate into ticket sales at stand-up of people who would come to my show's as fans from the podcast. So while it got far less, uh, far fewer, you know, lower numbers than radio stuff, I had a much more committed audience. And um, that almost sort of saved my career, which was sort of going nowhere at at the time. Um, Yeah. So a lot like Marin, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Marin did Edinburgh, I think it was 2006. Um, Yeah. And 2006 was the year John went to do the the Daily Show, and we'd had two radio series cancelled. he got off of the Daily Show job and had to go to America two, three weeks before we were supposed to be starting an Edinburgh show together. Um, and my wife got pregnant all in, the, all in the space of about a month. So it was kind of a time wow. of upheaval. But Mark Maron was yeah, there. God. And, you know, he'd been, he was a terrific, terrific stand-up, but his career wasn't really going anywhere at the time. And, yeah, yeah. you know, he started his podcast a while after that. And, you know, it, 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 it you know, made him, uh, you know, a huge huge star and make, you know, gave him yeah. almost a, an entire new career. And through the, through is, the bugle, sorry, I go got invited to write for Crick Info. So that, that then um, sort of opened up the door into, into cricket because I used to talk about cricket on the, on the podcast. And, um, yeah, someone, uh, right. Will Luke from, who was working at Crick Info at the time and now works at Crick Visit, he emailed me and said, do you want to write for us? And that, so that was my, my little, uh, opening into, into cricket, which via a very indirect route, led me to test much specials of eight years I love later. that. That's really, no, but that's really succinct. I love that. And I think what I'm, what I really, really like is the way you talk about um, uh, keeping going. Do you know what I mean? It's so important. Like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life. I'm 39 years old. I'm creative, but I just <laughs> tried fucking everything, Andy. It's ridiculous. But I started this podcast. Originally, it was political. You know, it was, it was four years ago or something. I took a year, year and a bit out of it because I got done 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 smoked to death with politics i'm just sick of it um and it started out as a liberal (laughs) democrat podcast that's how pathetic that's how unbearably pathetic it was you know you think about that party now and what they've helped to achieve you know in terms of like you know i know i don't want to go on down a rabbit hole of 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 shitting over the lib dems but i'm not (laughs) a big fan of them anymore but um and i don't know what i was and i'm glad i took that time out but it's just interesting how people do persevere. I love Mark Maron's story because, and he's still so relevant and I still love his podcast because there's still that element of, of him as he was back then in like what they started it in two, I don't know, about 2010 or something. So you were three years before that. And I don't know, maybe it's because now you've got such a good um, a support structure, a fan base and you are a success that, and it's been long enough now um for you to be able to look back with it with some form of comfort because i what fascinates me it's not about people not like true crime podcasts it's not about you know i don't know drug podcasts and all this kind of crap it's it's 
listening to people talking about like on the brink of failure that has fuck all to do with drugs or whatever <laughs> or sex addiction it's just about um hey guess what my name's mark maron or whatever andy zaltzman and and i was i my career was literally dead in the water and this is how it turned <laughs> around and you know and um and just being honest about it you know and and I, that's kind of what i like about um the mark maron story but then obviously you mirror that with with your own story there and and this this the, the the bugle and how you're able to i'm, I'm waffling because i'm it just fascinates me that's all well uh yes i mean it's um and people aren't yeah, I mean, open people's about careers it, Andy. go in strange <laughs> well maybe not but and and but, but the thing with comedy is and it's one of the things that 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 is so addictive about it i think and that's it is that you you're constantly embracing the possibility of both success and failure every time you go on the stage mm. there's a you know, public form of of success and failure and you know that you need to learn to deal with that and the the good ones mm. and and the bad ones and that you know sort of works over the course of a career as well you know some people get breaks others don't others get breaks and don't take them uh it's you know that's just just part of the game and I, you know that i think there's there's a time where you know I, I guess you need to stop sort of seeking for what you perceive as what you deserve and just you know just Absolutely. i guess have faith in what you do do it for the for the love of it you know if you're lucky enough to be able to to do comedy as a career, as I have been for um, over 20 years now, even if it was just hacking around the circuit, uh, it's, you know, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. So I think it's very dangerous to judge yourself by other people's fortunes. And I, you know, I worked with John Oliver for, for years before he went to the States. We had a great working yeah. relationship, and then he gets a break on the, the, you know, the biggest and best political satire show in the world, and I'm playing Edinburgh to 20 people um and you know we'd work very closely as as equals until then and it you know, just sort of illustrates how careers can go and you know it was great to but see him do, with that, do as well as he he had and it was great sorry how did i deal how with do that? you do with that yeah like i mean that's a big thing he, how did he deal with no, how did you deal with it? I mean, I have yeah, well, absolutely it's... just hands up, no fucking idea that that happened to you so this is literally just i this is not a pre Oh, I'm talking to Andy about that. That must have stung. I'm just thinking that yeah. as a mate, um, mates, because I've had mates become, become sex successful. So, well, I mean, it doesn't. It didn't sting, but, but it, you know, there were times where no. you know my own relative lack of success was you know I found frustrating. I found a little hard to deal with at times, not out of a you know a sense of jealousy of thinking that I should be doing what what he was doing, but just the fact that you know I I felt that I had. I wasn't maybe being as successful as I could. Didn't have the audience that I that I could have done. But there's no point to seeking to blame other people or uh, regret your your own um, you know lack Choices. of lack of success. Because at the same time, I was you know still able to earn a living doing comedy. But I think definitely you know the the Bugle podcast coming along when it did was as I said it was a huge change in my my career and it sort of hmm. sustained it for for years and led to many other things and even now you know that with getting the news quiz gig it definitely helped me that i'd had you know 12 13 years hosting a show um before that and i think it helped it john you. um yeah it helped john when he got to you know front his own show which had the wonderful experience in the daily show for for however many years he did before he started doing his own show last week tonight. But I think, you know, the fact that he was writing stuff every week for the Bugle that was just purely his own stuff, I think 
stood him in good stead as well when he then came to anchor his own show. So there's, yeah, I guess what I'm indirectly saying fairly indirectly is uh, over the course of a, of a career, like I say, you need to be fortunate to, to get the opportunities, but mm. um, you know, even things that don't seem particularly uh, useful or relevant at the time, I guess they all sort of help build up that, the, the no. range of skills you have, the yeah. experience you have, the, you know, the, the, what's the kind of the wealth of narrative you have behind you. No, I completely agree. Like, I think where I'm coming from is because I'm not successful yet. Like, I enjoy this podcast. It's given me some great opportunities to talk to a lot of people like yourself who are, I feel like we have had a good chat, um, which isn't always the case um, in <laughs> politics. I think that's why I got the fuck out of politics because they're, 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 you know, it's not particularly nice. Um, but I, I, I think that there is a... Um, there is a moment in certain people's lives when they've had success and when they're ready for it. And I think there are people um, like you've had like years and years of doing the bugle and then something comes along for you that has, has prepared you for it. You didn't even know it was happening. You didn't even know the preparation for the the next step up was happening. Um, and that's interesting because I think any any person listening to this would be like, I'm trying to get a step up in my job or I'm trying to get a different... I don't know, I'm trying to do different career change and trying to push myself. It doesn't matter whether that's comedy or whatever, what have you, or podcasting, but it's it's just helpful to know that we're all striving. And yes, as long and, as there's tr some truth to your path, then you yes, should and, find a way. And also, you know, success and progress comes in different ways to different people. There were people I started out with who did very well very quickly and then rather fizzled out, and there was others... Jimmy Carr, Russell Howard, who did well quickly and were able to sustain that. Um, you yeah, yeah. McIntyre is an interesting example that that he you know, had several years on the circuit, um, not going particularly far. And then by the time he then got his break on a couple of TV shows, he was you know a, a rounded, well developed act and was able to yeah. take advantage of that. Um, yeah. So it, and you know there were people who got their breaks too early and you know didn't really have the the experience the range of skills to deal with it so uh, i never really had much of a career plan jimmy carr was always you know very ambitious he already you know had a very clear idea of what he wanted to to do doing comedy um, to think about others it, right? like me just um well yeah i mean i, I, I he worked in uh he worked at shell before from memory but um yeah he was you know he, he on the open mic circuit he was you know the most professional open mic act that I've ever seen. But, um, I bet. So, you know, but other people it sort of went into it out of curiosity and it sort of accidentally became a career. Um, and, you know, some obviously had great talent that would, you know, you thought go for. I mean, the first time I saw John Oliver, he was you know, a prodigious natural performer, very funny. He, was, he did quite a lot of acting as well. He was, uh, you know, you could, you could see that he had everything needed to be a, a success even doing you know five minute open mic spots uh russell right. howard was the same um yeah. uh, i think you know, josie long when she was yeah. 17 or 18 had a, you know oh, clearly there was long, a you know, great comic mind there yeah. so th those are the kind of people i started out with um i think bridget chris so yeah but it's uh, uh yes yeah and uh, well, she yeah. uh the first time i saw her i think she was working as a sub editor at a newspaper or something at the time and yeah. Um, and it took her, you know, a while to find that distinctive voice that she that she has, as it does for for most people. So, um, yeah, I guess my my career, I'd never really had a much of a plan, and things just slowly shifted and um, 
Uh, I guess at, the, at the moment, I'm in a, a fortunate position of having, you know, being able to do the my podcast, radio, and the cricket, and do you know, and hopefully stand up when stand up begins again. Being able to make a living doing things I absolutely love. So it's a uh, mate, yeah, yeah. very fortunate. No, absolutely. Really. No, no, no. It's great. I'm, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm also happy we've managed to get this chat done because like it's uh it's it's great to talk to another tms um voice it's 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 great voices of summer and what have you and and also it's so great to be able to talk about comedy with you and i feel be honest like you know like you know in podcasts uh, people this you know the new sort of thing about being super emotional and open and honest in com in, in conversation and podcast now i i struggle with that if you can if i i, I have super <laughs> I, have, I have like a superficial level of um adolescence sweary teenager thing about it. <laughs> and you know and I, i'm good with guests it's okay but i'm very rarely open up and to say like i'm struggling with success so i'm glad that i was able that to say that for the first time on the podcast and also <laughs> in front of a guest and bear my bear my naked bottom uh, in front of you uh, i haven't by the way we have no we have no video <laughs> although that would be weird if i was yes. uh different show but anyway it's my niche in the market so for the naked bottom yeah. podcast <laughs> right okay cheers all right mate bye cheers bye, bye. bye. bye.